0: Thank you, you may be seized. There's not a fifth verse there? Um uh, no. Oh, <laughs> oh well that's why I couldn't find it. I was searching the entire building for my Bible. Alrighty. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther, chapter 1. We're going to be uh, starting in verse 10 today, going through to uh, verse 23. Uh, some of you might remember a couple of weeks ago we began our journey in Esther, uh, and then uh, a couple of things interrupted it. We had a, a snowstorm that unexpectedly uh, sort of shut us down for a week, and then Uh, Nikki and I just got back from our furlough in uh, Hawaii, Um, and so we're going to be picking right where we left off in the book of Esther, uh, chapter 1. And because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Esther, I just want to look at just a couple of uh, things from the previous sermon so that everyone is on board. So what we looked at is the idea that Circe's uh, Xerxes, rather, who is the king of Persia, uh, is treated and acts like a god. He is uh, this massive figure throughout human history. He is responsible at this time. Uh, his father, Darius, put together the largest empire that the world had seen up to this point. Uh, and while... Esther uh, 3.17. Uh, and so while uh, he's, his father put together this empire... Uh, Xerxes rules it Uh, at this point in human history. He has gone out and conquered even more. And at this point in Esther, he's just done a feast, uh, a 180-day feast. If you ever think you've had a party gone a little bit too long, uh, you've got nothing on King Xerxes. He had a feast that went on for 180 days. It covered everything you can imagine. We talked a little bit about the Uh, the furnishings of his palace and how uh, there were literally precious stones inbuilt into the the, the carpets and into the walkways. His couches were made of gold and silver. He had goblets made of gold. He had curtains made of purple, fine silk linens. He had silver uh, curtain rods. He was just wealthy beyond all imagining. And he was putting together and he put on This particular feast so that he could get all of his political officials, his military leaders, and anyone who was anyone on board for his invasion of Greece. He wanted to uh, expand his empire even more, and he wanted to conquer the city-states of Greece. And so as you do if you're trying to get anyone on board, you throw a big party and try and wine and dine them. And he did that for a period of 180 days, half a year, and then he had an extra party at the end that lasted for seven days for everyone else. Which I always thought was, I, I'm not sure if you should be ha- like if you're the everyone else, if you should be happy or a little bit sad about that, like, well their party went for 180 days, we only get seven, but then on the other hand it's like, well I haven't eaten in six months, so now at least I can eat. Am I right? Like, left hand, right hand sort of situations. So, uh, Xerxes ruled his empire from his throne, it covered roughly 3 million square ni- miles, which is about the same size as the United States. Uh, He ruled over many people, languages, and nations. Uh, We talked a little bit about (coughs) the fact that Xerxes actually invented what we would define as the modern-day postal system, where uh, they had a motto, neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor the darkness of night would be able to stop us. That was actually from the Persian Empire. The United States stole that because, let's be honest, it's a pretty good slogan if you're a postal worker. Um, The postal workers, when you think about it, though, might not really like it. You know... Walking around in the snow, I don't like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was constantly surrounded by a group of bodyguards guards called the Immortals. There was ten thousand people in the Immortals, and what I found out—and uh, I actually found this out after the sermon last week—is the way that they, the reason they were called the Immortals, uh, was because they maintained their numbers at exactly ten thousand, uh, and they had a regiment of spares of people in training ready to go that all they did was sit around and be ready to go so that if one of the immortals died he was instantly replaced by one of these spare people so it looked like he didn't actually die so that's why people thought that they were immortal which to me is a little bit of trickery People would come to meet Xerxes, uh, and when they did, they had to bow down and worship him like a god. There was a rule that Xerxes had a massive throne. If you passed in front of the throne, if you walked on the carpet in front of the throne, you had to bow down to it, whether Xerxes was there or not. And if you didn't, you were instantly put to death. Uh, He loved his throne. He brought it into battle with him. Uh, If anyone tried to sit on his throne, they were executed. Uh, If they tried to stand on the rug, like I just mentioned... Uh, They were executed. Uh, He loved it so much that when he threw this party that lasted 180 days, the throne was the centerpiece of the room, and everyone had to come in while he was sitting on his throne so everyone knew exactly who was in charge. Um, He would have women paraded in front of his throne so that he could choose whoever he wanted uh, that particular day. Uh, His standing army was between one to three million people strong his army contained mostly people from conquered nations with Persians being in the uppermost positions to maintain his authority and control and he would ride his throne into battle this massive throne 7 feet high made of solid gold inlaid with jewels and precious stones uh, he would have that carried on the backs of slaves into battle they would find the highest point put him on the highest point so he could see his army of one to three million people go in and conquer. To say this man had a little bit of an ego is an understatement. (laughs) He made people call him a god, and he made people worship him like a god. And everyone in that day and age treated him like he was a god. He declared himself, in fact, to be the son of God, if that makes you, like, sounds any uh, familiar. He declared himself to be the king of kings the son of the living God, and he was going to uh, absolutely push his authority onto everyone. That Xerxes, that's what we covered a couple of weeks ago. You with me so far? Wonderful. Last week, or a couple of weeks ago, we ended with the observation that Jesus is a greater king. So where Xerxes was this absolute great ruler, according to him, Jesus was greater in every way you can imagine or measure Jesus was a greater king so that was all last week now we're moving on to today verse 10 so this is Esther chapter 1 verse 10 if you're reading along and I encourage you to follow along in your bibles says this on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine he commanded a whole bunch of people the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asasurus, who is King Xerxes. I'm now just going to call him Xerxes because that's difficult to pronounce, and I'm not doing it. <clears throat> I left my water backstage, I, I've got nothing, or up, up there somewhere. I'm not going to stumble across these things. As we continue on, I want to have you meditate on this fact sin increases left by itself or fueled by things happening to you sin will always naturally increase it never decreases by itself Uh, if you've ever heard the expression the thin end of the wedge it's a very interesting analysis on sin, if you consider Adam and Eve the way that in in the book of Genesis sin escalates it starts off with discontentment, and then it moves on to uh, uh, doubting the the word of God, and then it moves on to hiding from God, and then it moves on to lying to God. And by the end of the third, fourth chapter of Genesis, it's actually escalated to the point of murder. Sin by itself increases and escalates naturally. It doesn't just sit and stay at the same level. If you were to ask someone uh, who had a drug habit. Uh, if you were to ask them if the same amount of drugs sustains them without them escalating their usage, there would be no. They would say, no, you get used to this certain high and you have to start seeking new drugs or more drugs in order to get the same high that you got a couple of weeks ago. And so you're always on this level of going more and more and more. And it is the same with every single type of sin. The first sin that ensnares you is never enough By itself, It doesn't sustain itself by itself. In fact, it increases and it grows. Are you with me? Does that make sense? As we're looking at the stories of Xerxes, you can see that this party starts and just gets way out of hand. It's a massive party. It is ridiculous. Um, uh, Xerxes has thrown this party to end all parties. He's lavish, extravagant. It's got an open bar. It's all you can eat, all you can drink Uh, for 180 days. It is just Lavish and extravagant. Uh, interestingly, the women of the court had a separate party. So these 180 people uh, 180 days uh, was just for the males. Uh, normally in Persian society, uh, the males would have a party and their wives would actually serve them at that party. However, Xerxes declared that he wanted his party to be better than every other party, so the women were cut off to Vashti's separate palace. Yes, you guys, she had a separate palace, like his and hers matching. You know what I'm talking about? If you ever wanted to know if you've got too much money, it's when you have a separate palace for your wife. That's, that's the, the, the rule here. Um, uh, Queen Vashti had this separate palace that she entertained the noble women and the, women, uh, the wives of the political rulers. Oh, you're amazing. I love you. I'll take that one. Isn't she wonderful? Kathy's amazing. For those that don't know, uh, every time I show up the Kathy's here, the first question she asks me is, do you have coffee and can I get you one? Yes. <laughs> if anyone knows me, they know that that's the type of servant heart that I can get behind. I love that. So the noble women, the wives of the military officials, were taken off into a separate palace, uh, which meant that the only women who were present with the men in this particular party... Uh, were those who were hired to be there? They were prostitutes and they were uh, women of ill repute, is what the scriptures would call them. And so, I, I want you to imagine that this party starts off fairly tame. That then, after 180 days of constant drinking of alcohol, of constant indulgence in food, that it escalates then into consci- conscious, conscious uh, and consistent uh, sexual sin. This is not a, a fun party towards the end. Um, I found this quote, uh, it's absolute sin unleashed and unrestricted. If you've ever seen sin unleashed and unrestricted, it gets to be a horrible thing. Um, If you look through the history of the world, if you look at human history, you'll find that no one ever starts off uh, their position by saying, hey, let's kill everybody. They always start a lot more uh, subtly than that. Uh, when Adolf Hitler took control of Germany before World War II, he didn't start a platform of, hey, let's kill everyone who doesn't agree with us. He didn't start with the platform of, hey, let's kill every Jewish people. He started with a platform more along the lines of, hey, let's get us back to the state that we were. Let's make Germany great again. That's literally one of his slogans. I'm not being political, I'm just telling you history. He started there, and it escalated to the point where they were systematically exterminating not just Jews, but also people of different ethnicities that they didn't like, people of different religions that they didn't like, people of different socioeconomic status that they didn't like. They uh, went after a group of people called gypsies. They went after the handicapped and the lame. Anyone who had a physical deformity was executed. Uh, It started innocuously, but sin by itself escalates until its most terrible form. Are you, are you with me on this? And this party started off quite simple, but then it grew and become unleashed and unrestricted. It says at this point, this is in uh, chapter one, that the king himself was merry with wine. This is a very nice politically correct saying, he was drunk off his face. Uh, there's no nice way of saying, when you read this, merry with wine, he was so intoxicated that he probably couldn't make decisions. I'm just saying, like, it was bad. Now, just so you know, drinking doesn't make you smarter. Now, does anyone want to push back on that? Anyone want to argue with that particular statement? Drinking does not make you smarter. It makes you think that you're smarter. It does not, however, make you smarter. Now, I found this very interesting. According to some sources, it was actually believed back in these times that when men drank they got clearer thinking because they were closer to the gods. And that when men got drunk, they would make the great life decisions that they wanted to, to pursue in their life, and then they would wake up after a blackout and be like, well, I must have been close to God, so it must be a good idea. Uh, in case you're wondering, that that's not how it works. Um, if anyone here has ever had a problem with alcohol... There is no point that I, I can promise you. There has never ever been a point where you've drunk so much that you've passed out that that made you more intelligent. Okay? In fact, it does the opposite. It kills brain cells. I've got evidence. I've got evidence, scientific research, study evidence to show you that drinking kills brain cells and in fact makes you stupid. Don't do it. Moving on. Sin increases. Xerxes. It says that his heart was merry with wine. He was drunk. He was completely plastered. And he thought in that state he was going to make the best life decisions. And if we continue reading through this passage, it's very clear that he did not make the best life decisions, right? So what happens next? I want to just spend a moment to talk about this. sin. I think we, we have a, a, fundamental, uh, a fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is. We think of sin as something that's easy recognisable. It walks down the street, you can point it and be like, that's sin. Like it's wearing a t-shirt that says sin and the person next to it says, I'm with sin, with an arrow pointing at it. And we can identify it really easy. Uh, What I found in my personal experience as well as in talking with others is that sin doesn't make you do things you hate. It helps you do the things that you love. It helps you do things that are bad and things that are wrong, things that are indicting and things that are enslaving. Sin doesn't come to you and make you do the thing that you you absolutely detest. Like, if you absolutely hate singing in praise and worship, sin isn't going to come up to you and be like, you know what, you should really worship God in that praise and worship, even though you hate it. No, it's not going to do that. Sin's going to creep up behind you and be like, well, they don't really need you. You're not really good enough. You can't really do that. You're not on the same level as everyone else. Just sit here and and be hateful. Just sit here and be contemptuous of the people who are giving back to God. Just sit here. Sin doesn't jump up in your face that often and declare itself, hey, I'm wrong. I'm sin. Just don't worry about it. Sin doesn't do that. It creeps up slowly and insidiously. Uh, do, do you agree with that? Like sin isn't like this blank. Sometimes it is. Every now and then, sin can be very heinous and in your face and it sort of slaps you across the face. But most times, it starts off very small. It starts off uh, doing things that you, you love. And you're like, oh, I like doing this. So it can't be bad. It makes me feel good. So it can't be sinful. Everyone else is on board with it. No one else is saying anything to me about it. So it must be, it must be fine. To, to, to quote most teenagers, well, everyone else was doing it right? Have you ever heard that as an excuse? Well, they were doing it, so why not me? Whenever I, I would say that, my father, who I love, but I also detested because of how many times he was right, would always say to me, well, if your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you follow them? It's like, no, Dad, because I love me. Like I like being me, and why would I jump off a cliff? That's silly. I stole cookies from the cookie jar. I didn't jump off a cliff. Let's you, you know what I'm saying, right? Anyway. In life, some of you are going to get frustrated because God said no and you want yes. Some of you are going to get exceptionally frustrated because you will formulate a plan. You'll go to God and try and convince him that your plan is awesome, your plan is the best, your plan can't fail, and God's going to come back to you either through uh, the voice of God, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints... God's going to come back to you and he's going to say no. And you're going to get angry and frustrated with God because you want yes. You want it yes. You want it now. You want it your way. Some of you are going to get frustrated with God because of that. Look, well, Satan always says yes. Because Satan doesn't love you like a father. I've told this story before. Um... There was a time when I was a kid uh, when I didn't know that the stove was hot, right? We had one of those uh, electric elements that, that, that heated up and glowed red, and that's what you would, you would boil. And I, there was no concept in my mind that that was extremely hot and dangerous. My father told me that it was hot and dangerous. And then I wouldn't listen, and for some reason... Uh, that I didn't figure out until much later. My father actually let me touch the thing. He didn't encourage it, he didn't make me do it, but he didn't stop me from touching the red-hot thing where I burnt my finger. Now, in today's society, many people would call that child abuse. This was, you know, in the early, uh, late 80s, early 90s, so we were a lot less uh, strict back then. But you know what I learned when I burnt my finger? Fire? It's freaking hot. (laughs) It hurts when you touch it sometimes sometimes God allows you to get hurt. He doesn't step in and stop the hurt because sometimes you need to learn a valuable lesson from the hurt. Sometimes corrective measures is all that gets our attention. It would be fantastic and it would make my job a heck of a lot easier if uh, uh, God could just say something and then everyone's like, okay, God, I'll do that. That would make my job easy. But, But... Have you ever noticed that children are stubborn? I don't have children. I have a niece and nephew. I don't get to see them very often. Uh, four or five times a year, they'll come and stay with us for a week. That's my experience with parenting. And at the end of that week, it is good enough for me to pick up my nephew, give him back to his mother, and say, see you in a couple months. <laughs> I made a good decision by not having children. Children are stubborn, but here's the point. Satan will always say yes to the things that give you, that does you harm. Satan will always say yes, because he doesn't love you like the Father in heaven loves you. And sometimes God says no, because his plan is better, or he knows that your plan will ultimately lead to your destruction. He says no when they're going to do something that is going to harm them or others. Sometimes God will say no to you because he knows that if you follow your plan to its ultimate conclusion, someone else is going to get harmed. Sometimes God says no. Amen? You don't get mad when God says no. You say, God, tell me what? Tell me what then? Moving on. Second point. See, we're moving along. This is only the second point in a four-point sermon. Strap in. What we're going to look at is here, first of all, that sin escalates, but second, that men are dominated. Verse 10 says this. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded these guys, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king. What you need to know is the Bible talks about real people in real circumstances and real history. These guys, these seven people, were actually people. They were eunuchs who served in the king's court. Now, what is a eunuch? I know some of you were asking this question. Dictionary definition of a eunuch. Uh, a eunuch is a man that used to sing bass and now he sings soprano. Okay, uh, one, of these, one of these jokes I'm going to have to fire myself, I promise. Is there a nice, respectful way of saying what a eunuch is that's not going to embarrass everyone in the room? Eunuchs are people who through surgery have had their testicles removed. Is that a nice way of saying it? So when I say that men are dominated, there are literally people in the service of the king who the king has decided he's going to take a razor knife and start chopping and then make those men serve him. One of the things you'll find when sin escalates is that men are dominated. Now, I know it's not a particular an interesting word men are dominated in this kingdom every man bends to the will of xerxes now we're going to get to the women later don't don't feel like i'm isolating you in the bible there's a, a clear societal and family structure uh, when you're talking about the family especially when you're talking in new testament terms Uh, In a family structure, a family that believes in God and follows and loves Jesus, the man is put in charge of the household. That's what scripture says. I'm not, if anyone wants to know, I'm a feminist. I don't believe this has anything to do with feminism. But in our households, there is a certain responsibility placed on the man. He's put at the head of the household, and the head of that man is Jesus Christ. Now, in in a basic hierarchy system, you have God, you have the man, you have the wife. Now, if you were single and you were not married, guess what? You're the head of your household. This is only talking about married circumstances right now. And so you, what happens is uh, a lot of people take that I'm the head of the household as the right of the man... ...when the reality is it is the responsibility of the man. It is the responsibility to make sure that his wife's theology is in check. When, when we get to heaven, I'm going to stand before the throne of God... ...and God, I believe, is going to uh, ask for an account of all my actions... Part of those actions is, did you love for your wife? Did you care for your wife? Did you lovingly correct your wife when she had bad theology? Did, were you there for her? Did you support her? I have an extra level of responsibility as a husband that I would if I was just single. I, does that make sense? Have I offended too many of you? I know it's a very orthodox kind of fundamentalist position to have nowadays, but that's the position I was raised in, and I believe it because it's scriptural. Now, it doesn't mean that the woman is completely devoid of responsibilities. There are responsibilities that she then has. Underneath the woman, there are children. that Both the man and the woman are responsible for shepherding towards a relationship with Christ. And so when my wife stands before Christ, he's going to have questions for her about the way that she lived her life. Something that happens in the kingdom of Xerxes is, is that every man bends to the will of the king. The Bible tells us that one of the greatest blessings are children. You can read through the Psalms and it will tell you that children, uh, I didn't read this in a particular context, but there was a, there's a particular Psalm that says uh, that children are like uh, arrows in a man's quiver. Speaking back historically, a full quiver was a great thing because it means you could go hunting. If you could go hunting, you could provide food for your entire family. And so the Bible calls children arrows in a man's quiver. They're a blessing. What Xerxes does in this particular, with these particular seven eunuchs, is he denies those blessings. Does that make sense? He, I'm trying to get across that Xerxes completely dominates the men that are under his rule. Third point. In this particular court system, women are mistreated. So sin increases, men are dominated... And women are mistreated. We read this. Uh, carrying on from verse 10. Uh, verse 10 ends with this. That he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king to bring Queen Vashti before the queen, king with her royal crown or wearing her royal crown in order to show the people that and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at Like, we all saw this coming, right? Like One guy sits on the throne. All the military guys are there. All the political guys are there. The party goes on for six months. Open bar. Women are turned into a harem before them. Men are castrated. Women are being mistreated. And he says, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. And what I found in my readings through the Midrash is that commentators believe that the command literally meant... Only her crown. Bring me Vashti wearing only her royal crown, completely naked, so these uh, men who have partied for 180 days, who are drunk off their faces, who are debauching and, uh, and sleeping with women throughout the entire court, bring her before me completely naked so these men can ogle her. When I say that women are mistreated in this court, I mean women are mistreated. Xerxes is not the hero of this story. Xerxes is an evil man. There is nothing, nothing in the text of Esther, there is nothing in the text of human histories that say that Xerxes is a man that anyone should aspire to be. Despite his influence, despite his power, despite the fact that this man rules the world, no one should want to be like Xerxes. And it comes to a head where Vashti is ordered before the king, completely naked, disregarding of all her honour. She is the queen of an empire, and Xerxes demands that she debase and degrade herself. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command. <laughs> Duh! quick, quick straw poll. Wouldn't you? Is there anyone here that would get that request and be like, sure, I'll be right over. No one? No. Thank you. We're all on Queen Vashti. Believe it or not, commentators are argued over, uh, argue over whether Queen Vashti did the right thing by disobeying the commands of her king. There are two camps. I can't believe that there are two camps on this issue. Like, hey, take off all your clothes and appear before, uh, before the king and uh, up to 50,000 drunk men. And people were like, well, maybe she should have because he is the king after all. No. Jeez. Um, this is a, a, a Jonathan trans- translation. Uh, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. So at this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Uh, what I believe is that Queen Vashti said, Tell him to stuff it. <laughs> or as you should read in the King James, stuffeth this are you with me that she did the right thing here some people don't agree I agree and whatever women are mistreated there is for 180 days there is a group of prostitutes that have been made literally to have sex with these drunk men for 180 days and then Queen Vashti is ordered in in front completely naked now application time I'm sorry I'm running over Uh, I'm sorry but I'm not sorry Application time. Men. Here we go. Here's a question What is your standard of beauty? For the men that are in the congregation, what is your standard of beauty? Here's what I find really interesting. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God didn't give them a standard of beauty, He gave them a spouse. So often, our society is fond of saying, Well, he's not my type or she's not my type. God didn't give Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden a sense of beauty. He gave them a spouse. God doesn't give us today a standard of beauty. He doesn't say, This person is beautiful, that person is beautiful, that person is, is my ideal. He doesn't do that. What he does is he gives us a spouse. Xerxes thinks his wife is beautiful. He values her beauty. He doesn't value her as a person. He doesn't value her as a spouse. Do you agree with me on that? Just just learning what we're learning about the nature and character of Xerxes, uh, he thinks that Queen Vashti is another thing for him to own and control. He doesn't value her as a spouse. Scripture says that a man should value his spouse, that uh, in the book of Proverbs, that women who are wise are a jewel and a crown for men, for their spouse. That being said, because everything has to balance, uh, the book of Proverbs also says that uh, it's better for a man to live on the roof of his house than in a wife with a nagging woman. Just just, let's keep that in balance. Which is why in the book of Acts, you'll find that Peter actually is on the roof of of his house and God comes to him with a vision. There's a reason he's on his house. I'm just saying, these things... Scripture says that a nagging woman is like the dripping of a tap. The constant dripping of a faucet. You know what Chinese water torture is? That's what a nagging wife is like, ladies. I don't, that's in the Bible. I didn't make it up. It's in there. Xerxes wants to parade Vashti in front of all these men. Now, horrible things happen, and we can look at these men and say, man, they're, they're nasty men. Look, uh, I don't touch on this issue very often. Men do this today, but they do it in front of their computer screens. Uh, there's a, a group called Covenant Eyes... And they issue a survey to the church, specifically to the church, once a year. The last survey that I read is that 75% of men who attend church on a regular basis, which is two to three times a month, 75% of all men who attend church regularly use pornography on a regular basis, which is two to three times a week. Wow. Uh, women who regularly attend church, the same statistic 50% of women who attend church two to three times a month use pornography 50% of the time on a two to three times a week basis. Pastors, people who are in my position, and these are just the ones who answered this survey honestly, is the same statistic. 50% of all pastors who are in the pulpit week into, week out, will use pornography two to three times a week. We don't talk about it in the church because sexual issues aren't really brought up because it makes it feel uncomfortable. When I wanted to talk about a eunuch, I had to make a joke about a eunuch being a bass who's now singing soprano because it's awkward to talk about issues of sex. But I don't think uh, the opening chapters of Esther can be uh, addressed in any way other than to bring this up, to know that statistically, if there are four men in this room, three of them are using pornography on a regular basis. That is a church statistic of the United States, just the United States. So we look at these guys and we're like, man... Back then, these people were disgusting. We do it the same. We just do it in through computer screens. Application time for the ladies, because I know you're all about equality, so here we go. I'm, I'm going to get beaten up after this. Just... When the Bible talks about submission for wives to husbands, it does not include anything that is degrading humiliating or endangering too many men spouses will say well you just need to submit to my authority because the bible says so nowhere in the bible does it say that a wife has to submit to a spouse who degrades his spouse De- uh, degrading your spouse means publicly berating them saying to in public in front of people you're wrong i'm right just submit humiliating people, making fun, mocking your wife in public, endangering wives, putting them in harm's way. Nothing in the Bible says that. If you are married to a man that makes you do this stuff, if you are dating a man who makes you do this stuff, get out. Come see me. I'll talk to you about what you're rights are, what your options are, what your biblical responsibilities are, but there is nothing in scripture that says that a wife needs to stay with a man who is abusing them. When I was in uh, Bozeman, Montana, I had a wonderful lady, a member of my congregation, who came to me and said that she used to be a Catholic, and when she went to the church for help because her husband was mentally and verbally abusing her, the church told her that if she got divorced, she would go to hell. That thinking is pervasive in the church, it is toxic, it is nothing, nothing in Scripture. If you're being abused, the husband is not coming up with his responsibilities as a husband. Nothing in Scripture says that submission means doing these things. If your husband asks you to do things that disobey Scripture... He is not the highest authority, the Scripture is. I don't think I need to argue that point. Most of you know my position on the authority of Scripture, that it is fundamental to everything we do and everything we preach. If it is in the Bible, that's what we believe, that's it. If anyone asks you to do anything that disobeys uh, the Lord, Scripture is always your highest authority. And here's here's the, the key. Men only have derivative authority from the Lord. Leaders in any capacity only have derivative authority. Authority, not innate. Because I am a husband, it does not mean just because I'm a husband that I get authority. I get my authority from the Lord who gives it to me. If the Lord gives me that authority, the Lord can take that authority away. As a husband and as a pastor, a leader in the church. The Bible does say respect, obey, and honor your husband and to submit to him, but it is within the context of obeying Scripture. It tells husbands to love their wives, to honor the Lord, obey the Scriptures, and to be under the authority of the elders of the church. There are levels upon levels upon levels of uh, rules and regulations for the way that men are supposed to behave. And if any man does not behave that way, then he loses his derivative authority from the Lord. And look, sometimes the godliest thing that you can do is to say no. Okay? If you've got a husband, if you've got a boyfriend that says, hey, I want you to wear a skimpy outfit, dump him. Like, ladies, I'm not kidding around. A lot of the times it's a lot easier said than done because if you look... Uh, If you did a population, uh, a survey of the population, most people have self-esteem issues and they're in relationships because they get their self-value from the person that they're in a relationship with. That is a common statistical fact. And so this is a lot harder said than done. But if you've got anyone that says to you, oh, I just want you to, why don't you just take a layer or two off? Get rid of them. They're not good for you. They're toxic. We live in a day and age where guys really want their women, and I use that term loosely, you know what I mean, to be objectified by others because it infers value on them. Does that make sense? And the answer is no. We don't don't do that. The reason we don't do that is because Jesus has a greater way. This is the landing point of the sermon. I know I've gone on about 15 minutes longer than I was supposed to. Whatever, I don't care. Last week we looked at Jesus is the greater king. This week what you need to know is that Jesus has a greater way. There is a way that the world works. Jesus has a greater way. There is a way that sin works. Jesus has a greater way. There is a way that the world says marriage works. Jesus has a greater way. In all things, Jesus has a greater way. For men, he doesn't want you to be dominated. He doesn't want you to be under the will of a single person. He wants you to be under his will because his will is greater for your life. Women, he doesn't want you to be subjugated to the unscriptural commands of a husband or a spouse. He wants you to be in a scriptural relationship with that spouse, because Jesus has a greater way. In all things, Jesus has a greater way. We look at Xerxes, we look at Esther, and we can see that, that what's happening in this particular chapter is that sin has escalated to this point where they think that this is normal behavior. And when you look at the world, the world that we live in today, often... The world says that this is normal behavior, and it's not. Jesus has a greater way, amen? Amen, Amen. let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to come into your presence today and to talk about your word and your work. Lord, I thank you for the book of Esther, that it can be pertinent to our Christian walk today. I pray, Lord God, as we go from this place, that men understand their place and their role in their spousal relationship. And I pray that women understand that under no circumstances do you ever want them to be degraded or humiliated. I pray, Lord God, that you be with each one of us as we go from this place that we can make these words your own. And we thank you. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.